Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Kat Arney and with Dave Ansell. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest science breakthroughs. Kat, what have you got for us? This is from the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal, which is a wonderful source of slightly silly science stories as sensible researchers around the world just cut loose and go crazy, um, as we'll hear later as well. In this edition, there's a great paper from researchers in Switzerland and Germany, which is the traditional home of fondue. That's the tasty treat, mostly made up of a bucket of melted cheese. I love it. But while fondue is a tasty treat, eating such a large amount of melted cheese can cause indigestion, also known as dyspepsia. Now, traditionally, fondue is eaten along with hot tea, which is thought to prevent indigestion, but other people favour alcohol in the form of wine or even schnapps. Now, scientists wanted to find out which drink did go best with fondue and caused least indigestion. So they persuaded 20 volunteers to eat fondue and gave them either white wine, black tea followed by either water or schnapps. And obviously, because this was a scientific experiment and not just a meal with their mates, they also added a small amount of a harmless tracer chemical. And by measuring the amount of tracer in the volunteers' breath, the scientists could work out how fast the fondue was leaving their stomachs. And they also measured the amount of alcohol on their breath and asked the volunteers to rate their feelings of indigestion, bloating and nausea during the experiment. And so the team actually found that alcohol did slow down the rate of stomach emptying compared to tea and that adding schnapps also slowed it down further. So the combination of wine and schnapps apparently made people feel much fuller for longer and this is a phenomenon referred to by the researchers as having a cheese baby, which uh, uh, people may be familiar with. But in fact, the no, time... not personally. <laughs> You clearly have not eaten enough fondue, Chris, in your life. Um, but actually, the type of drink, whether it was wine or tea, made no difference to the whether someone was likely to get indigestion or not. Now, even if you're not having fondue for your Christmas dinner, the scientists do think their findings may extend to the consumption of alcohol with other types of rich meals, such as the traditional British Christmas dinner. And I'm sure that uh, myself and the Naked Scientist team will be conducting very rigorous experiments in this area over the coming weeks. So the bottom line is uh, don't have copious quantities of alcohol with your Christmas dinner. Is anyone going to follow that seriously? No. <laughs> no, didn't think so. Thank you, Kat. Dave? Considering the weather, I've a nice story here. Now, scientists appear to have found what looks like an ice volcano on Titan. Titan's a fascinating world. It's about as large as the planet Mercury. It orbits Saturn. And because the sunlight reaching it is so weak, its surface temperature is about minus 189 degrees centigrade. Now, despite this, it's got an active weather system with lakes and rivers and rain. But this isn't with water. It's with liquid methane and ethane. They've actually sent a probe down there and you see lots of rounded pebbles on the surface and mountains. They're not made out of rock. They're made out of ice. So this is a strangely complete low-temperature analogy of Earth. So what's a volcano doing then? <laughs> exactly. Um, Randy Kirk and colleagues have found a volcano about a kilometre high on the surface of Titan. Um, they've called it Sotra. But rather than made out of rock, it's made out of ice. 
So the centre of Titan is obviously a bit warmer, possibly heated by gravitational effects from Saturn. Some of the water inside there is occasionally melting and it's spewing it up. And there's what looks like a whole series of kind of lava outflows coming out to one side of it and it's kind of flowing down, make these beautiful sort of shapes coming off it. So the thing that makes this happen is because Saturn is huge and exerts a very strong gravitational effect and Titan's quite close, it gets squeezed and stretched as it goes around Saturn because it's not going around a perfect circle around the planet and that, that tidal stretching and squeezing makes some friction inside the moon which melts some water and, and presumably drives this volcanic effect. Yeah, that would be certainly one of the effects warming up um, Titan. And this obviously makes Titan even more interesting to study as there's all sorts of more exciting geology going on but with a completely different set of materials to Earth. But also, of course, wherever there's molten water, the chemistry gets very interesting and there's always the kind of possibility of there being something to do with life involved. So Darwin's warm little pool, but somewhere over there, millions of miles away. And rather a lot colder, yes. Thank you, Dave. Now, can you get drunk by immersing a part of your body in alcohol? Well, that was vaguely the hypothesis that a festive team of doctors from Hillerod Hospital in Denmark decided to investigate. And Dr Christian Hansen joins me to tell us what they did. Hello, Christian. Hello. Well, they say that Heineken refreshes the parts that other beers fail to reach. Um, what were you trying to do? Well, uh, in Denmark we have an urban myth that alcohol can pass through your feet if you submerge them in uh, alcohol, vodka, mainly. So we thought that that was a quite important study to do because it's never been shown that alcohol can pass through your skin. There's been done some studies with the cadavers and uh, that didn't really show anything in particular. So It's it hard to tell whether someone who's dead is drunk though, isn't it? Exactly. So what did you do? Well, we uh, bought some of the cheapest vodka we could uh, get our hands on and we uh, sat down for three hours submerging our feet uh, in this vodka at uh, the hospital. When you say submerging uh, your feet, do you mean as in when you have those stereotypical pictures of someone with a cold and they sit there in an armchair um, with their feet in a bowl of hot water and a towel wrapped around their head? Is that what you were sort of doing? You had your feet immersed in a bowl of vodka? Yeah, except for the except for the towel, towel that would probably be a, a fairly good image of what <laughs> we did. And we had the lab um, examine our blood for ethanol for the three hours, the duration of the, the experiment. So blood samples were taken regularly during the experiment to determine what the concentration of alcohol was in the bloodstream at any point? Exactly, every 30 minutes. And they were, of course, uh, rushed to the lab to... Uh, Make sure that uh, the ethanol um, concentration didn't uh, reach uh, lethal uh, levels. And how many of you were participating in the study? Three of us. And, uh, <laughs> we were all, um, we were all uh, uh, employed at the hospital, so we had no students or uh, volunteers in the experiments. OK. Did, did you find any alcohol getting into the bloodstream? None at all. At first we thought quite uh, confident and happy, almost intoxicated, but uh, we actually measured uh, if we had any uh, spontaneous hugs occur or uh, and, uh, stated our self-confidence level, but uh, it didn't really show any significant changes. So in other words, as well as measuring the level of ethanol in the bloodstream, you were also doing subjective measures of whether you were experiencing inebriation, Dutch courage, or in this case, uh, Danish courage, um, and speaking too much, speaking loudly, that kind of thing. And, and everyone had that, but they didn't actually register any alcohol. No, it didn't. Um, did anyone get tempted to drink the alcohol after the study when people's feet had been in it? 
Yeah, the, oh no, yeah, it was kind of uh, difficult <laughs> because we didn't really know what to do with that at all. It, was, it should be uh, disinfected and no bacteria would be present, so um, it was quite difficult uh, putting it in the in the toilet afterwards. So it was quite a shame, but the the study was uh, effectful, I'd say. So the, talking seriously for a minute, the implication is that you can't actually absorb alcohol in any way, shape or form, at least at the level of detection of, of your assay. In other words, how sensitive the lab's test is, which is probably pretty good. And so this suggests that uh, people actually are going to have to take alcohol through their mouth or, or potentially through other routes in order to get it into the body, but definitely not through the skin. Yes, I'd say through the mouth would probably be the golden standard. But uh, we've only measured uh, vodka with uh, 38.5% of alcohol. So there should be experiments done with stronger alcohol, I'd say. So maybe on to the Calvados next year then? Yes, probably. Christian, thank you very much. You're welcome. Good to have you with us. That's Christian Hansen from Hillerod Hospital in Denmark. And you can actually find the paper where they describe doing that experiment in the December edition of the British Medical Journal. Cat. Seems to be lots of food and drink stories. I've got another food and drink story here. And in case you were thinking of shunning turkey for Christmas dinner this year, not chowing down on a fondue, but on hamburgers, researchers from the University of Arizona have some advice that could help to reduce the formation of potentially cancer-causing chemicals and also inactivate food poisoning bugs in grilled meat. Now, when you pop your burger on the barbecue or under the grill in this weather, uh, it goes nice and brown and crispy. But at the same time, chemical reactions that take place as the meat is heated up produce chemicals called heterocyclic amines. Now, these chemicals are thought to be partly responsible for the increased risk of cancer in people who eat a lot of cooked meat. Cooking meat at a lower temperature can reduce the formation of the chemicals, but it also increases the chances that bugs like E. coli, which can cause food poisoning, won't get destroyed. Now, researchers at the University of Arizona have suggested that a chemical compound called carvacrol, found in the herb oregano, could actually help to solve both problems. Now, carvacrol is an antioxidant, one of these things we hear so much about, and awful lot is said about them, some of it not really very relevant, uh, but the scientists think that it might reduce the formation of these heterocyclic amines as the meat is cooked. And, as an added bonus, the compound also has antibacterial properties and can inactivate bugs like E. coli. And the scientists, led by Sadhana Ravishankar, are currently testing a range of plant compounds mixed with hamburgers to try and find the most effective compound Combination, that still tastes nice because apparently uh, the carvacrol itself it, it doesn't taste that great so a little more work needs to be done but this idea maybe you could have a sort of a multi-purpose burger with some flavoring and this antiseptic uh, anti-cancer agent in it intriguing burger a la detol now that's what i was going to say that uh, surely this is only any good if people actually like oregano or whatever this other carvacrol tastes like so it's got sort of limited use is there no way that chemists can tweak the molecule a bit to come up with one that doesn't have a vile taste or impart too much of a flavor but still has the beneficial effect well i think that's what they're trying to do testing various compounds to get the uh, the acceptability of taste with actual functional benefits and some of the problems with doing this kind of research testing plant compounds is sometimes you do have to have an awful lot of the plant compound to get a benefit from it so for example, there's a lot said about red wine, this chemical in red wine called resveratrol that can have cancer-fighting properties. But 
to get enough from red wine, you'd have to drink about 100 bottles a day. And Chris, I don't think even you could manage that. I was going to say, last time I went for a drink with you, Kat, you were well on your way there. <laughs> lies, you. all lies. Now, does owning a lightweight carbon fibre bike cut down your commuting time? Well, that was the question that Dr Jeremy Groves, who's a consultant anaesthetist at Chesterfield Royal Hospital in the UK, was asking because he tells in a paper that's published for Christmas in the British Medical Journal that uh, for many years he was driving to work and then he went on a fitness drive by deciding to actually commute the 43.5 kilometres to work and home every day. And he decided to do it on a steel-framed bike that he bought for 50 quid second-hand after sprucing it up a bit. That's how he puts it in the paper. But the thing was that he realised it was taking him quite a while to do this journey, so he wondered whether investing in, thanks to the government's cycle-to-work tax incentive scheme, it was worth investing in a nice expensive carbon fibre lightweight bicycle in order to shave some time off of the commute. Would this work? So to find out, he decided to do a trial on himself. So what he did was to buy a £1,000 carbon fibre 9.5 kilo weight bicycle, which he then compared with his old steel 50 quid 13.5 kilo steel frame bicycle. And each day he tossed a £1 coin to decide which bike he was going to use and then rode the journey using a cycle computer to keep a track on how long the journey was taking and what speeds he was achieving. And he did this for six months. He did 26 trips on the carbon fibre bike and he did 30 journeys on the still-framed bike. It wasn't a blind trial, of course. He didn't blindfold himself. He knew which bike he was riding, so there might be a little bit of bias there. But here's the interesting thing. He clocked up 1,144 kilometres in travelling distance over the course of the trial and when he averaged out the journey times on both different types of bike, the still frame bike... Uh, took an average of one hour, 47 minutes and 48 seconds of cycling to do the round trip to work and back at the hospital. And the carbon fibre, very expensive, 50 times more costly, lightweight bike, he took an average of one hour, 48 minutes and 21 seconds. He does point out that the travel times are longer in winter because you're more frightened of falling off on your carbon fibre bike because the wheels are much narrower, so it's harder to keep your balance. Um, he also points out that cold weather means that you tend to ride more cautiously, you might wear more clothing, which weighs you down a bit. Um, but the point is that although the carbon fibre bike weighs 30% less than the steel frame bike, actually, when you take into account the person plus the bike, the number is actually only 4%. In other words, the weight, your weight plus the bike's weight, the bike only contributes 4% difference to the combined weight. And since you're therefore the, the sole determinant of the weight you're moving, largely, um, it means that you should, as he points out, pay more attention to the weight of the cyclist than to the bicycle. And he concludes his paper by saying, a new lightweight bicycle may have many attractions, but if the bicycle is used to commute, a reduction in the weight of the cyclist rather than that of the bicycle may deliver a greater benefit and at much reduced cost. So there you go. If you're riding to work, a trusty old steel frame bike that's donkey's years old and will probably go on forever is probably the way to go. It is, of course, an N of one study, so be careful, interpret with caution, Dave. You well, ride everywhere. Yeah, and my bike is certainly a very ancient steel frame bike, which has gone through various different iterations, although I do manage to keep breaking the frame. But anyway, I saw an interesting story about the sun, which appears to be varying in ways which no one expected. Um, the sun is obviously incredibly important for the Earth. It provides actually all the energy to drive the climate and, of course, life itself. 
I've been studying the sun for a long time, but almost all those studies have been done from the ground. So we have a very limited information on how the output of the sun changes in frequencies which don't make it through the atmosphere. These are particularly important for the upper atmosphere because if they're being blocked by the atmosphere, all that energy is getting dumped into the upper atmosphere, so they heat it up. And up until now, atmospheric modelers have assumed that the sun output changes through the 11-year cycle, but all different wavelengths change together. But a NASA satellite called SOURCE, the Solar Radiation and Climate Experiment, has been studying these changes in the sun since 2003. And it's found that all the wavelengths are not the same, not equivalent. The amount of ultraviolet light seems to vary 10 times as much as the average, and the infrared varies much less than you'd expect. This could explain why people have noticed that the temperature of the stratosphere varies far more than you'd expect during the solar cycle because you have an 11-year solar cycle where you have lots of sunspots and the sun's hot. Other places you have not many sunspots and the sun's cooler. And the extra UV you're getting when the sun's very active should be heating the upper atmosphere and so doing this. So can I just clarify one thing for a second? So what you're saying is that the sun has this 11-year cycle, or sunspot cycle, when it goes through um, periods of lower activity, peaking, and then it comes off again. Um, and the wavelengths of different types of light coming from the sun vary over that 11-year cycle, so they vary as well, but they don't all vary by the same amount. That's right. The shorter wavelengths are varying more than the longer ones. And this is obviously going to feed into climate models and things like that. And the initial ideas are that the sun probably has less of an effect on the climate than we'd previously assumed, um, just because of the way everything feeds back into itself. And so quite possibly these variations in the sun have had less effect on the climate in the last 100 years than people think. There's a study that got done a few years back where they were logging the level of water and tide marks going back about 100 years in some of the lakes in Africa, including Lake Tanganyika. And they were able to see 11-year cyclical peaks in the flooding, um, arguing that the sun was driving rainfall on the Earth in line with the solar activity, and this was what was causing these rises and falls in the lake level. Yeah, I mean, the sun, even minute changes in the sun's output are going to have effects, especially in certain areas on the Earth, because the climate is just so chaotic. But maybe not as large, what you're saying, is maybe not as large as we previously anticipated. Yeah, I mean, although this is very, very preliminary. Thank you, Dave. Well, if you'd like to read a bit more about any of the items we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts of each of those news stories are online now at our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.